Hello, I'm Alice Kelly. From Oxford's RAI, this is The Last Best Hope, the podcast which examines America from the outside in. A century ago, on November 11th, 1921, an unidentified American serviceman was brought back from France and interred in Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. This new form of remembrance followed the lead of Britain and France, who had buried their own unknown warriors the previous year on Armistice Day 1920. But America also did something else, and something that no other nation did. In September 1918, before the war was even over, Secretary of War Newton D. Baker promised to give the families the choice to have the remains of their loved ones repatriated to the States, if they could be identified, or to leave their loved ones where they fell. This little card was about a three-by-five-inch card, and there were about 75,000 of these that were mailed out to families who had lost husband or son overseas during the war. And uh, the card begins with the name, the surname, and then the Army serial number. But the most important part that concerned families was the line below that, which asks, do you desire the remains brought to the United States? And then on the blank line, it says yes or no. Lisa Boudreaux is a senior curator of military history at the Tennessee State Museum and the author of Bodies of War, World War I and the Politics of Commemoration in America, 1919 to 1933. Below that, if remains are brought to the United States, do you wish them interred in a national cemetery? Yes or no. And then lastly, if you desire the remains interred at the home of the deceased, Give full information below as to where they should be sent. But digging up tens of thousands of bodies from the battlefields on the Western Front and transporting them first to French and Belgian port cities and then across the Atlantic was a massive operation and one fraught with difficulty. And it ended up costing the government $30 million to repatriate 45588 bodies to the U.S. and close to 800 bodies to Europe. But it was it was full of chaos and confusion. If you can imagine bodies being exhumed from temporary graves and moved multiple times, in the process, identity was lost and um, bodies just got mixed up with other bodies. And uh, it was a it was a horrific process. So why, given the logistical and diplomatic challenges, did the Americans do it? And how did this choice to bring the dead home impact the ways that Americans remember the First World War today? This was a political step. This was an effort to unite a very diverse culture, a very ethnographic mix of people in the United States. And there was a great deal of controversy, diversity, disharmony during and especially after the war. And so the government took on this responsibility to help, they hoped, build some kind of cohesion within the American society. Another thing, Alice, one of the reasons behind this, think about the 1920s and how many veterans there were and their rising political power. Kevin Fitzpatrick, author of World War I New York, A Guide to the City's Enduring Ties to the Great War and co-founder of the commemorative project Homecoming 21, And so by doing the right thing, by bringing home their buddy uh, from France, 
becomes of paramount importance. And so it becomes part of their identity to have reunions and memorials created for their, you know, fallen friends. Yeah. By 1927, I just want to add to that, there were over 300,000 members of the American Legion. And then you had their auxiliary, women's auxiliary as well, and that they had extreme political power. There was no doubt about that. So keeping them happy, as Kevin said, was, was crucial. And I think it's important to remember that this precedent had already been set before World War I. American fatalities during the Spanish-American War were returned to the United States. And that was a, a huge, although the, the total number of American fatalities in the Spanish-American War was uh, quite small in comparison with World War I, it was still a tremendous logistical challenge because many of these bodies had to be transported from uh, the Philippines, for example. Um, so I think Americans had a, a kind of expectation that this would occur. Stephen Trout is professor of English at the University of Alabama and author of On the Battlefield of Memory, The First World War and American Remembrance, 1919 to 1941. Now, there was a strong lobbying effort on the part of Americans who held a very different view on this issue. And their position was that the bodies of American soldiers should remain on the battlefields where they fell in France and Belgium. And one of the most prominent figures identified with that particular campaign was none other than Theodore Roosevelt, um, of course, the, the two-term president from uh, the early 20th century. His youngest son, Quentin Roosevelt, was an aviator in the First World War and was shot down on Bastille Day. And buried, actually, at the spot in France where his plane came down. And Roosevelt felt very strongly that just as his son's remains should uh, be kept in France, this was a broad policy that should be applied to American fatalities in general. John J. Pershing took the same position. So did many other prominent American commanders in the First World War. So this was extremely controversial. And this was an extremely painful, sacred burden, if you will, for, uh, especially for women. Because for, first of all, if they had chosen to leave the body overseas, of course, there would be no uh, family funeral service. There would be no headstone in the local cemetery. There'd be no closure. So important in the grieving process. They also, family members also had to take on board would he be better taken care of over there? Would his memory be preserved? Or should I bring him back home where I would have a headstone, a place where I could mourn his loss? It was, it was just an extremely hard decision. And there was concern that, that they wouldn't get the right body because there were so many rumors that the graves registration service was making mistakes and that people were, would receive an empty coffin or just rocks. And uh, most family members had no idea of what was going on over in France or what it, battle deaths looked like on the front line during battle. And in their minds, it was uh, to die on the battlefield was a beautiful death. And so thousands of families changed their minds over the course of the waiting period. There was actually a steady stream of cable dispatches going back and forth between Washington and France as Families tried desperately to make the best decision. And in many cases, they changed their minds several times. And if I could elaborate on that for just a minute, I mean, I think there are two competing narratives that really come out of this, this issue of whether or not to repatriate the fallen. 
Um, if you keep the bodies abroad, then you're really making a permanent commitment to this vision, this internationalist vision of America as the, the progressive savior of Europe. Because presumably those bodies aren't going to be going anywhere. They'll be there forever. And they'll symbolize that those ties between the old world and the new, between Europe and the United States. On the other hand, if you repatriate the bodies and, and bring them back to the United States, you, you can integrate them into narratives about, about service and sacrifice and patriotism and collective suffering that, that transcend the, the particularities of any one conflict. Okay, So they get integrated in this narrative at home that is all about the tradition of martial service on behalf of the nation. And so you can think about the dead of World War I in the same way that you might think about the dead of the Spanish-American War or of the American Civil War. Um, all of these conflicts uh, get, in a sense, conflated in, into one narrative. And I think Americans in our, in our commemorative culture have a tendency to do this, not to dwell on the specifics of the various conflicts that we find ourselves caught up in, and to think instead of, of sort of transcendent concepts of, of national service and, and sacrifice. And this is, of course, a dangerous thing, because it means that, that really discussion of the, the morality of American involvement in a particular conflict can sometimes be, be muted by the notion that we have to honor Americans service regardless of the of the circumstances. So the American people were presented with this opportunity to repatriate their dead if they wanted to. Of the 75,000 cards that were sent out giving people this difficult choice, over 45,000 of them decided to bring their loved ones back to the United States. In late 1920, the remains started coming home. And then in 1921, as the returns began to increase, the government decided to select one of these returning ships for an official homecoming ceremony, which took place on May 18, 1921 in Hoboken, New Jersey. On board the ship was over 5,000 coffins. So that was the U.S. Wheaton, and that was a special, what they called a funeral ship. And the Army chose the returning transfer cases for the men on the ship and quite a few women, to represent as many counties as possible in the 48 states. That way, everyone was represented. And President Harding went to Hoboken the week before Memorial Day to welcome home that ship. They came off to a giant warehouse, and there's beautiful photos that the Army Signal Corps took of it. And Harding actually used a flag-draped casket as his podium. I mean, imagine a president today giving a speech over a dead American soldier. You just would never see that again. And the different regiments and divisions had their own funerals and memorial services throughout the days. So the 42nd Division came over, 27th Division. And then those coffins were taken out, put into the backs of ambulances and other trucks, and taken to the railroad stations to go out across the United States. And some of them took just a few days, some took many weeks. And then they landed in those small towns where those towns received those war dead back and then had their own memorial services and funerals. President Harding put himself front and center representing the American government welcoming these dead American soldiers back to the American shore. And photos of that ceremony were front page news. As Stephen points out, it's striking to think of the difference between what happened there in World War I and in the early 2000s when the Bush administration was leading the war in Iraq. 
and you may recall the the controversy over press photographers who managed to get into the portside warehouses where the flag-covered caskets of American servicemen and women killed in Iraq uh, were being kept before their transportation to people's hometowns and so forth. And and th- this was considered a, a breach of security by the Bush administration. It was extremely controversial. We can't have the public seeing these images of flag-draped caskets coming back to the United States. To me, that's a, that's a quite dramatic contrast. And it says a lot, I think, about the American public's willingness to accept fatalities in war. And I, I think the public has shown less and less of a willingness to endure large-scale losses in, in America's various conflicts, certainly in our 21st century wars. And our government has been increasingly hesitant to, um, I think, get the United States into conflicts that would produce anything like the death toll that you had in World War One, or for that matter, Korea or Vietnam. And then when you do have um, uh, repatriated remains, every effort's made to sort of play that down. So I think that's an interesting contrast. That's a completely different scene. We can't imagine it now, can we? Yeah, we can't. We can't. We can't. There was a period, well, I mean, maybe the closest thing to it would be the, would be the COVID pandemic. You know, we've seen 700,000 Americans die from this this virus, and that's more than all the Americans who died in, in all of the country's 20th century wars, all of them put together. And so I think in a, in a strange way, Americans have become, since the onset of this pandemic, sort of habituated to reading about these lists of casualties, if you will, casualties to a virus that in some cases run over a thousand a day. And, and that's what you were looking at in terms of the American death toll on the Western Front, really from the early summer of 1918 until November 11th. In the fall, the United States is involved in the largest and bloodiest battle in its entire history, and that's that's the Meuse-Argonne, where more than 25,000 American soldiers will die. And so this loss is concentrated in a, in a very brief period, and I think some scholars have tended to dismiss the notion that America would have been in any way traumatized by military loss during World War I because uh, the number of American casualties is so much smaller than, than what you have for Britain or for France or for Germany or for Austria-Hungary. Even Italy lost far more people in World War I than the United States did. Most Americans don't even remember that Italy was in World War I, or if they remember it at all, they remember it through uh, Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms. Yeah. So... Um, for that reason, I think people have tended to say, well, you know, the military violence didn't really have an impact on the American public in World War One. Let's focus instead on mobilization or let's focus instead on the growing power of the federal government or what have you. And I would argue that actually when you think about the duration of America's involvement in World War One, and you think about how relatively brief that window is when you have all of those American soldiers who die on the Western Front, I think it had a tremendous impact on, on Americans citizens at home, and one that we shouldn't underestimate. There grows on me the realization of the unusual character of this occasion. The University of Virginia's Miller Center holds a recording of the speech President Harding gave at that ceremony on the dockside, surrounded by those 5,000 flag-draped coffins that had arrived on the U.S. Wheaton. daughters made the sublime offering and went to hell at graves as the nation's defenders. But we never before sent so many to battle under the flag in a foreign land. Never before was there the impressive spectacle of thousands of dead returned to find eternal resting place in the beloved homeland. The incident is without parallel in the history that I know. 
These dead know nothing of our ceremonies today. They sense nothing of the sentiment or the tenderness which brings their wasted bodies to the homeland for burial, close to kin and friends and cherished associations. These poor bodies are but the clay tenements once possessed of souls which flamed in patriotic devotion, lighted new hopes on the battlegrounds of civilization, and in their sacrifices, fed on to accuse autocracy before the court of eternal justice. Now, World War I is a pivotal conflict in the history of political language, and in its aftermath, there was a lot of scepticism about the grandiose verbiage that you hear there in Harding's speech. It's the kind of rhetoric that John Dos Passos pillories in his novel 1919, which ends with a devastating prose poem section called The Body of an American. Dos Passos mocks the official rhetoric intended to conceal and aestheticize and make good the shell-blasted remains of an American soldier who was so disfigured that he could never be identified. Passos is interested in the physical carnage, the reality of war that's lost in all this symbology. So this is, this is a section near the beginning. In the tar paper morgue at Chalons-sur-Marne, in the reek of chloride of lime, in the dead, they picked out the pine box and held all that was left of eeny, meeny, miny, moe, plenty other pine boxes stacked up there containing what they scraped up of Richard Rowe, an other person or persons unknown. Only one can go. How did they pick John Doe? Make sure he ain't a dinghy, boys. Make sure he ain't a guinea or a kike. How can you tell a guy's 100% when all you've got's a gunny sack full of bones, bronze buttons stamped with a screaming eagle and a pair of rat patees and the gagging chloride and the pukey dirt stench of the year-old dead? I think what's remarkable about that passage is the way that he, he puts the voice of that graves registration soldier in the middle of it who's expressing his desire for the unknown soldier to reflect 100% Americanism. Another part of the context of that scene that I think is important is much of this exhumation of, of bodies was handled by African-American soldiers in World War I. And it was black Americans who worked in the graves registration service and would have been involved in digging up these bodies and helping to transport them and so forth. And of course, the idea that the unknown soldier could be African-American was absolutely unthinkable. And James Weldon Johnson, a great poet in the Harlem Renaissance, has a poem that he publishes in 1930 called St. Peter Relates an Incident of the Resurrection Day. And St. Peter tells the story of this huge procession being formed by all of America's war dead on Judgment Day. And uh, the only soldier who can't join them is the soldier who's in the tomb of the unknown soldier because he can't he can't get through the the concrete enclosure to join the procession, and so all of these American patriotic and jingoistic and and uh, in in some cases nativist organizations go to the tomb and they get out the jackhammers and the crowbars and they release the unknown soldier. And by the way, the Ku Klux Klan is involved in this effort as well. It's joined in the parade. We should recall that the Ku Klux Klan enjoys its era of greatest popularity in the 1920s, largely by adding immigrants and Catholics to its attack list. So the Klan in the 20s no longer simply going after black Americans and now has these other groups as well. The Klan will, will number in the millions in the 1920s. So Weldon's very careful to have the sons of Confederate veterans, the daughters of Confederate veterans in that procession, and he puts the KKK in there. And so they, they open up the tomb, and what's the revelation? Of course, it's a black man. 
So all of a sudden, this procession just turns into bedlam, and uh, the members of the Ku Klux Klan volunteer to, to seal him back up in the tomb, but it's too late. He's already ascending to heaven. So I think those Passos in USA, and certainly James Weldon Johnson in, in that wonderful poem, are just offering these withering attacks of the way in which the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is becoming part and parcel of the sort of nativist sentiment in the 1920s and the way that all of this pomp and circumstance is concealing some really bitter truths about America, including the truth of racism. So anyway, those are two great examples. It's 100 years since the arrival of the U.S. Wheaton in the States. And as part of the Homecoming 21 project, Kevin has been traveling around the states visiting church cemeteries, family plots, community cemeteries, as well as national cemeteries to map out the burial sites of those who were returned. And he's been organizing local tributes and ceremonies. Now, what I found by going to these cemeteries, it's the sadness that many of them who were brought home by their parents, some of them are in unmarked graves. And to me, in a way, it would have been better for them to have stayed in the national cemeteries we built in France and England and Belgium, that they could be remembered and honored. Because you have to understand, a lot of these men died so young, they didn't start families. So after their siblings and parents passed, who is going to visit or maintain that grave? And also, Alice, in this country, the Veterans Administration will give a family a headstone. All they have to do is fill out some paperwork and it's submitted to the cemetery, and they will get a granite gravestone. We're still doing this. Families are doing this. Descendants are doing this in this country for men from the Revolutionary War, Civil War. It's a common practice. But what I was finding is I would go to the cemetery, say, in Queens, you know, look for the plot and find an empty spot, which is really sad because here was this family that went to all this trouble to bring their loved one home And then they didn't go that extra step to actually get a gravestone. In 1920, the government was just bringing the remains home, but they weren't going to fund the funeral or the gravestone. That was up to the families. For some of these men, their widows may have remarried or one of their parents may have passed on. So it really was up to those next of kin to take that next step to create a memorial. And of course, some of the men have elaborate memorials and some of them have nothing. The thing is... If you were buried in a national cemetery in the United States, which today is maintained by the Veterans Administration, except Arlington, or the American Battle Monuments Commission, which maintains our overseas cemeteries, there are databases of those men and women that you can look at on your computer with many times photos of the grave. But for those that were brought home and went to community cemeteries, church cemeteries, family plots, as well as national cemeteries as well, too. There is no database. There was no way to find these men. And so we use the National Archives records to look at the ship manifests of those ships that brought the transfer cases back from France and Belgium to marry them up with find-a-grave records and local newspaper obituaries to build a map and a database of all those men and women. The volunteers who are primarily doing this work, building the map and database, are Gold Star Mothers, an organisation initially set up in World War I, made up of women who have lost a child in active service. So today, that's in Iraq and Afghanistan mainly. They want to know that in 100 years, 
someone will be visiting their son's graves as well too. And that is how they grieve. And that is their connection to the men and women who are interred in this other cemetery in another state for them. After the First World War itself, the Gold Star Mothers were invited to go on pilgrimages to see their sons' graves in France and Belgium. And only about 6,000 mothers travelled to Europe on the Gold Star pilgrimages, which happened from 1930 to 1933. The controversy was that these pilgrimages were racially segregated. Of course, many of the mothers who went on the pilgrimage were from the South, and the idea of sailing on the same ship with black mothers would not have been acceptable to them. And uh, the government didn't want to take any risks with the program. And so the Hoover administration decided that they would be segregated pilgrimages and that black mothers would sail separately from the white mothers, although he claimed that there would be no difference in the quality of the trips and that both mothers would receive the same treatment. However, the NAACP got involved, and this became a huge civil rights issue. And um, the NAACP asked all the black mothers and widows to write to the War Department. They had little cards made up. And they sent them to the War Department saying, we very much object to this. Our sons fought and died alongside white soldiers, and there's no reason why we should have to sail on separate ships. And this controversy just added to the overall disharmony in terms of where the dead should be buried, what kind of monuments should be buried, should there be unknowns come home. It's just It just points out how much disharmony there was in the United States and the lack of of unity, social unity. All these efforts on part of the government to uh, maintain and to create social unity and wartime harmony were not successful. So this choice to bring the war dead home, to repatriate the war dead or not, how has that affected the way that Americans remember or forget the First World War today? My feeling is that it contributed to, a, if you will, dilution of uh, the American memory of the First World War because, as Kevin said, once the bodies were returned to the United States, the government kept no records. And with Americans' transient culture, it's hard to say where bodies would end up or who would keep track of them or keep care of the of the grave. But also, there was a movement afoot to uh, bring back all the unknown. And during the decision-making process, whether or not the United States should, in fact, bring an unknown soldier back, Chaplain Charles Pierce, who was in charge of the Graves Registration Service, said, if you're going to send back one soldier, then I would urge you to send back all the unknown. Because to leave them over in France and buried overseas means that you're going to lose identity and it won't remind the American people of their losses. The fact that the government built all the monuments overseas, all the major national monuments overseas, is another contributing factor, I feel, to the forgetfulness of the American people. The cemeteries, they were urging them to be overseas. So if you're dead and all your commemorative structures are overseas and there's nothing or very little in your own country to remind you on a daily basis of the First World War, eventually that memory is going to be lost, especially when you compare to all the monuments in the United States to, say, the Civil War, which is still very much in the minds of Americans. But if you're unknown or not back in the States, 
your commemorative symbols are back in the United States, then eventually and your graves are spread all across the nation, I think that um, it's very doubtful that there's going to be a strong national memory for the war. Does World War I occupy a place in collective American memory today? And I would say no, but I would say that it does occupy a place in, in family memory. I think Americans remember World War I, and I think Americans remember World War I far more than we're often led to believe, but they don't remember it collectively. They don't remember it in a way that produces master narratives of the past or that creates bodies of mythology that then resonate through, throughout our culture. The reason I say this is I'm sure you've been to the, the National World War I Museum in, in Kansas City at Liberty Memorial. If you go to that museum on a weekend, it's absolutely packed. It's absolutely packed. It's every bit as busy as the as the World War II Museum in New Orleans. And if you eavesdrop on the people who are going through the museum, they're often pointing at artifacts and making connections with members of their own family. They're talking about stories that have been, been passed down by their great-grandfather or great-grandmother or great-uncle, what have you. So I don't think that, that World War I is forgotten. I think the memory, as you say, is diffuse. I think it's, it's spread among American families who have retained it to varying degrees and honor it, but it doesn't have a, have a public place, I think, in our national imagination. This is one of the reasons, one of many reasons, I think, why the effort to create a national memorial in Washington, D.C. has stalled. I mean, some of that's simply bad luck. The pandemic came along and really slowed that effort down. But it's also a, a result of the inability of the, of the United States World War I Centennial Commission, which received no tax funding at all. And if you, if you look at the history of American war memorials, it's often the memorials whose existence will depend upon fundraising as opposed to tax dollars that, that get in trouble. You know, the, the memorial to John J. Pershing, for example, that stands in the Pershing Park, where this, this new World War I memorial designed by Sabin Howard is, is going to go. You know, that memorial to Pershing was first proposed after his death in the late 1940s, and it didn't get erected until the early 1980s. It took all of that time for the American Battle Monuments Commission in an uncharacteristic move. They were here involved with a memorial at home, which sort of goes against their charter. And secondly, they weren't working with public dollars. They were, they were using private funds to create this memorial to Pershing. And it takes decades to put it in place, and then it's forgotten almost from the moment that it's that it's erected so i think the fact that the new national memorial to world war one is having problems that's part of a pattern that you see in the way that commemorations funded in the united states but it also speaks i think to to sort of this general feeling on the part of the american public that they don't feel a compelling need to have this conflict necessarily memorialized at the nation's capital. It's enough to talk about it in terms of family stories. It's enough to consider it through its, its various ways in which its memory has been diffused throughout the country. And I'm interested in Kevin's perspective as somebody who's actively involved in commemorative activities. I know you're on the Centennial Commission for World War I in New York City. What do you think is going on with American memory of the war in relation to the centenary? How has the new memorial helped, or how will it help when it's finished? Well, one of the things I learned when I was in the Marines was that um, if you don't teach the history, you're not going to know the history. When I enlisted when I was 17, I don't even remember 
being taught World War One in high school. And it was only when I got into the Marines, they started telling us about Bella Wood and Dan Daly, because the Marines really drill it into your head that you're part of a long tradition. And I think that um, the centennial definitely raised the profile of the Great War. The National Memorial that is being constructed right now in D.C., while behind schedule, will be completed in the next few years. And it's stunning and beautiful. But it does have this tendency to slip back into unconsciousness. You know, World War One still does not have the kind of level of pop culture relevance as World War Two does in movies and films and everything else. And it's really the dedication of, you know, public historians and authors like like Lisa to keep talking about it. Just last weekend, just a few days ago, I was in upstate New York at a World War One air show and I actually got to see five biplanes flying in formation, which was thrilling. But the public really responded well to it. And they were very, very engaged in this World War One era, asking me lots of questions. And really, you know, it was kind of like an all-American weekend of, you know, hot dogs and ice cream and airplanes. And they had a tank and a 1918 Cadillac. World War One is looked at as something completely separate from World War Two. You know, the Tom Hanks movie, there isn't, you know, Steven Spielberg, you know, doing things about World War I. Um, it really has like this niche of culture. And you can really tell when you go into a bookstore, like an actual bookstore, and you look at the shelves upon shelves of World War II books, and then the six books about World War I. It's just a completely different experience in our country of of that era for us. And it's the same with the Civil War, isn't it? There's been a book published about the American Civil War every single day since the hostilities concluded. That's just staggering by comparison with the amount of First World War scholarship. You're absolutely right. I belong to a Facebook group of folks that put gravestones on Civil War graves. There's nobody that does that for World War One. Right. And uh, yeah, I was just thinking of the difference between New York and here in Tennessee. Right before we had the centennial ceremonies for World War One, we had our Susquehanna centennial for the Civil War. And here in the South, the Civil War, I would say, is still very much alive. And, and they received, the commission received funding and there was new trails were put up and there was a huge marketing effort to promote Civil War battlefield sites in Tennessee. And you didn't see anything like that at all with the First World War. Kevin Fitzpatrick, Lisa Boudreau and Stephen Trout, thank you for discussing this with me today. We might think about the US government's decision back in 1918 to give families the choice whether or not to repatriate their war dead as a more humane choice than that of the other allies, but one that perhaps contributed, as we've heard, to the dilution of the collective and cultural memory of the First World War in the US today. The centenary of the war has come and gone in the US largely without fanfare, but some hope that the new memorial will reinvigorate memory of the First World War in America. We'll see what happens when it is completed in 2024. My name's Alice Kelly, and you've been listening to The Last Best Hope, a podcast from Oxford's RAI, a department for the study of America and its place in the world. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.